go, everybody. Uh, this is the newest episode of Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. And I'm sitting here with Tracy Desjardins, who was my first boss when I moved to San Francisco in 1996. Tracy whipped me into shape. Uh, she's been guiding me through this crazy industry that we talk about, I think, every other week. <laughs> Rather perplexing. <laughs> and uh, Tracy nicknamed me, probably, I say that was like the first or second day I think I was working at Rubicon. I think it was fairly predictive, Chris. <laughs> it was one of the funnier moments uh, at, at Rubicon when I started. Um, it was I started the day it was a fancy food show. Was it? Okay, that, that was always a complete insane couple of days. Uh, too much as as a as a young cook being in, in the city, and that was when everybody showed up to town from all over the country. All over the country, every yeah. chef. That's okay. Tracy's baking banana breads. <laughs> so, Tracy, you set a precedent. I, I I personally feel that you set a precedent as a young woman when you went in this industry. You went to Europe. You worked abroad. I mean, you fought your way to where you are today. And I think that is super inspiring for so many young women out there, but so many chefs, whether it's male or female, who were scared to travel abroad alone, who were afraid to work in those types of environments. You set a precedent, like you changed the dynamic. Yeah, I think, you know, I always say I was sort of young and dumb. Um, I was 19 when I left for France and left California for the first time. And I just really, I had no idea what I was signing up for. Um, but I was determined no matter what it was that I was going to find on the other side to make it work. And um, that's exactly what I did. And, you know, some of it was really challenging and really difficult. Um, being in four different kitchens in France, uh, being the only young woman amongst 25 young men, um, which was, I was always the only woman. Um, um, and, you know, yeah, that certainly had its challenges. Um, I chose from a language perspective to sort of understand the things that were important and to, to tune out the rest. And, and that's how I, I got through it. But it was also incredibly inspiring to be working, you know, watching Pierre Toigreau work or Alain Sanderon. Um, you know, these are the legends of, of cuisine. And, and we didn't have those kinds of role models working in the United States at that point in time. Um, this was, I mean, we had a few. We had like Jean-Louis Paladin was here, and certainly we had the legacy of Andre Soltner at Latesse and, and people like that. But it wasn't what it is today where we had, you know, a slew of, of Michelin three-star restaurants in the United States. So when you got to France, did you have set goals? Were you like, I'm going to work for this person, this person, this person? Did you have everything set in advance? Or did you just kind of go with the flow and then just hope it led from one to the other? It was a combination of the two. The first time I went, um, I had a stage set up already at Trois Gros, And so I knew that that was going to be what I was doing for, um, that was eight months. Um, and then after that, I started started to poke around. Uh, I ended up with an opportunity in New York, went back to New York for a year and a half, and then returned to France for another stint, uh, which I did have lined up um, at, at um, uh, Alain, de, uh, sorry, Alain Sanderon's um, uh, Place de la Madeleine, um, uh, Jesus Christ, restaurant. My, 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 my brain is failing me. We're all Crying getting many. jello. In between yeah. those years, I think uh -huh. all of us are getting jello yeah. at this point. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, when you start to look at now how much easier it is for people to get over there, how much easier it is for to communicate with chefs on the other side of the pond, right? You, it's just 
DM somebody in social media. Right. You had to go through writing letters in French, asking, waiting for responses, getting, I mean, it's a totally different time when we start to compare those days. And even when I tried to go and stage in Europe, there was no no cell phone, no direct communique. It was facsimiles. I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, and you were also super isolated. I mean, you couldn't you know sort of track what was happening back home. Uh, you know, my my brother was living in Mexico City when I lived in Paris, and literally letters would take three to six months to get from me to him if they arrived ever. Um, you know, talking to your parents on the phone was, you know, you maybe did it once every six weeks because it was super expensive and you didn't have a phone in your house. You know, so you're really, really isolated. And, you know, that communication, yes, acquiring the jobs, but also you were like on your own on an island in, you know, the middle of nowhere, um, basically. And, you know, if you didn't have a language and you didn't have friends, yeah, you were completely, you know, on your own doing this thing, um, which, you know, made me hyper-focused and, you um, it was kind of a get her done, you know, it was just like, you know, I was really steadfast in what I wanted to learn. And I felt like it was really the only place I could be doing that particular thing at that time point in time, which I think is true. And I was determined. Um, and that's, you know, all the all the negative part of it. Um, I overlooked and, and just uh, head down and getting everything I could get out of the experience. So you've now <clears throat> you did that, you came back. You opened Patina in LA, you've run Rubicon, you've had Chardonnay, you've had multiple properties, um, great success, rising star, you've had James Beard Awards, you've had Food & Wine. Like, from those points till now, like you've had so many experiences. What is your favorite? Like what has been the most for you? Not awards, but just moment that meant the most to you from all those experiences. I mean, there's so many. I think that, um, you know, what it really distills down to, I think, are the the relationships that you build, um, the relationships that I have with people like you, um, seeing people who've worked for me step into their own success. Um, you know, I'm, I'm deflecting a little bit, but, um, you know, it really truly is the most satisfying point in my career is sort of seeing the elevation of others and their opportunities. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, running a restaurant, I just closed Jardinier after 21 years, um, having that kind of, I'm very proud of the fact that I had that kind of run and was able to open it gracefully and close it gracefully, um, which is really difficult. Um, I had never closed a restaurant before, um, which is really interesting because I've opened, you know, probably between 15 and 20 restaurants in my career uh, in some, you know, in some capacity, obviously not as the chef owner, but um, been uh, participated in, in an opening. Um, so closing one down was a new experience and, um, you know, a really, really interesting one that, you know, I've embraced as a process and something that I can talk about, um, and, um, kind of put out there in the world as, you know, a how to in, in, you know, probably not the most pleasant thing for anybody, but, uh, you know, certainly an important, factor in what we do because nothing lasts forever and and we're going to have you know closures as, as much as we do have openings um so it's an interesting i think it's an interesting time i mean you've seen so much change in the business right you've inspired me to think to you know when we went and cooked in the jails together mm -hmm. yeah which amazing, i was right? so scared to do that I'll mm -hmm. never forget being petrified to, uh, uh, i kind of got bullied into that one that day by my <laughs> wife <laughs> 
as I didn't want to go into the jail. Uh, I was always afraid I was going to end up in one. I was going to walk into one voluntarily. But I think you've, you've given back so much. And I think that's a big part of what we are in this industry. We're the hospitality business. We want to feed people. We want to make people smile. And I think that you've set a precedent in that. You've done that since day one. Do you see that continuing? Do you see it changing? Do you see it evolving? Well, I certainly hope it's my legacy. I mean, I, you know, I, I have to tell you a story. Um, I went to Aspen Food and Wine this last weekend and um, had the opportunity through the American Express Trade Program to not only speak on a panel about leadership and diversity in, in restaurants, which I think is having its important moment, but we'll get to that. Um, I had the opportunity to travel with two of our participants from La Cocina, um, one who's just starting out. She doesn't even have her own catering business yet. She has been a housekeeper and um, nanny in San Francisco for the last 30 years. She's from Oaxaca. I fell in love with her. Um, you know, I got to spend four days with her in Aspen. Um, and just at the very start of her career, um, she's um, in her early 50s and has raised, uh, you know, numerous children in San Francisco and, and has a passion for cooking. And she's starting out her own catering business. So amazing, Oaxaca um, Rosa from Oaxaca. And then uh, Hina Patel, who has Besharam, um, which is in the uh, Minnesota Street Pro Project here in San Francisco. Cisco, um, we had an opportunity to go to Aspen together and do a reception for La Cocina uh, in Aspen Food and Wine for the American Express Trade Program. And it was such an incredible experience because um, these these women got to see that world that I think, you know, we're accustomed to now and we're so entrenched in. And I think, you know, can we say the word jaded? Um, you know, um, yeah, you know, I think that's a really valid word. To <laughs> yeah. Say. And, you know, we kind of I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm going to call out my colleagues a little bit here. I think that we call it in a little bit. You know, we go to these places and we're cooking and we've done these food and wine festivals or these dinners or whatever. And, you know, do we really think about how special that might be for somebody? Um, you know, we've lost it's lost the luster maybe for us. Um, but seeing it through their eyes is sort of like taking, you know, somebody to Paris who's never been there and, and going through that process or, or someplace that you love that you're sharing with someone that you that you love and care about um, for the first time. That's what it was like. And, you know, it was a moment for them in time that was just so incredibly special. And um, we had, you know, many, many teary moments where they they told me how much they appreciated being there and and you know they got to meet Ruth Reichel and uh, you know uh, you know all the stars of food and you know Ming Tsai and Gail Simmons and you know everybody that that goes to Aspen um, a lot of those folks came to the reception and said that the food was the best food that they'd had in Aspen and you know these women were really putting their heart into the food that they were making there because it was such a special moment for them so you know note to self you know let's not get too jaded and not care about you know what we're doing or understand sort of the wonder of it um, because you know we have a lot of opportunities and a lot of really cool stuff that we get to do and I think sometimes we forget to to appreciate it I think that's really really important in a time where there's so many things going on there's so many people who need guidance and so many people who who need help in, in a time where you're right a lot of people take it for granted. We see it every day. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, even though uh, people think chefs are, you know, super, super rich. I mean, most of us aren't. I know no. you're not, Chris. I'm not. Um, you know, but, you know, we're, we do pretty well. I mean, we're, you know, we're probably one percenters, you know, like on, on the scale. You know, we, we have an opportunity to, to pull other people up. And um, that 
that really is my most gratifying work in sort of the, I'm going to say the last 10 years of my career, because that's kind of the way I'm heading, I think, you know, hopefully I'm 53. And I hope that, you know, by the time I'm 63, I'm not running restaurants anymore you know we'll see but um i can't see you not running a restaurant well i'll I'll be doing something it might be for me to see that don't (laughs) it might be a beach restaurant in mexico you know okay i'm down with that yeah exactly (laughs) you know it will be something i'm not gonna sit on my you know high knee but um you know what i'm doing today it's probably not gonna be what i'm doing in 10 15 years so of course i mean everybody evolves and and i think you've seen the involvement of food in san francisco you've you've you know, been with the opening of Rubicon. Yeah. Right. And um, that has been, I think Rubicon, if you really take a look at the family tree that came out of Rubicon, your family tree is pretty incredible. Yeah. The people that have come out of working with you, the list is endless. And, and I think, you know, people don't, when you start to do those family trees, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. And I mean, that's really the stuff that matters to me, right? You know, that I feel like I um, was able to influence, um, teach, um, spawn, uh, you know, these people who've gone out into the world to do amazing things. You know, um, I, I certainly didn't, you know, teach like, you know, Larry Stone, like the fact that I got to work with Larry Stone for three years on such an intimate level. And I learned so much from that man. You know, I mean, just, you know, what an incredible mind and palette and, Unreal, you know, an right? inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so those those, you know, also are the moments for me. I mean, Drew Neoport, you know, amazing. I worked for him two years at Montrachet and and uh, five years at, at uh, sorry, three years at, at Rubicon. Um, and, you know, also just, you know, old school, you know, Mater D front of house guy who really ran a dining room. You know, and so much of that stuff is mechanized now. Right. You know, and, and that was all in his head. Uh, you know, it's like the open table, you know, uh, matrix was in that man's head. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's still amazing to mm-hmm. think about all those moving pieces and really it's like when I got to Rubicon it was you Paul Aaronstam Scotty Newman Elizabeth Faulkner Richard Reddington Robbie Lewis uh, who else was on the line at that point oh my god Paul Lemieux Paul Lemieux was there yeah uh, I mean Paul Lemieux was the one who brought me in from right. culinary school that's right and, mm-hmm. I, and I think about those times and like who was there and and what was going on and how we were pushed and I mean it was such an intense amazing inspiring environment like well I, every person was excellent you know, and so, you know, you were, and if you uh, weren't, you were pushed to get excellent right. pretty damn quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, powerhouse of culinary talent, um, just, you know, unbelievable. I think back on those days and, you know, we don't, we don't see that kind of talent come, just come to us anymore. Um, and you know, that's a challenge in our business. We're not seeing the same quality of people come through. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the top kitchens are, I, I don't know, but you know, at the end it, Jardinier, I was certainly not seeing, you know, that quality of people come through to want to work. I mean, I saw a lot of young kids who said, wow, you know, they spend a day in the kitchen and say, this is really hard work. And yeah. my response was, what you think? <laughs> <laughs> this is really not that hard today. You're, tra- you're trailing on Monday. Wait till you see Friday and Saturday. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I think that's a, an interesting dynamic when you start to talk about staffing comparative to that. I mean, we had to, it was a multiple interview, cook something to get the jobs situation. Right. We were fighting for the jobs. 
Yeah. Yeah. And now, now it's, it's like no, if no, you no. show up and you have a heartbeat, you you got a job. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, are you, do you own your own knives? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we have some that you can use. And it's <laughs> like back then, it's like if you didn't have your own gear, you had to be ready to rock and roll. And I think we also have a dynamic. I mean, switch the whole parameters. We went from pretty male dominant, which you trained in, worked in, male dominant restaurant industry and it still is pretty it's pretty male dominant pretty male dominant and I've I've been talking with a lot of people and you know there's been the conversations of why don't we see more women chef entrepreneurs why don't we see more women chefs getting notoriety and then and you know there's been a huge change with the Me Too movement and you know uh, inclusion of race color creed and and I think it's been pretty amazing to see this change but what I what I one of the things that somebody a woman said to me the other day she goes I think that men are more apt to say yes to something if they're not ready to do Mm -hmm. it but women are more thought have more thought process they think it through and they want to make sure they're 95 percent ready before they say yes to do something different right they're more they, they reflect back and, and assess themselves want to make sure it's accurately be, correct <laughs> like I, re, I recall when when i started making bocalone though it was a really mm-hmm. funny conversation you and i had mm-hmm. and you said why is it that all the boys want to make sausage and all the women want to make cheese <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that I thought that that conversation with that young lady was really, really thought provoking because I was sitting in a, in, a, in a women's group that was uh, talking about like why don't they jump at more opportunity? And right. Like, and I was pretty impressed by that answer because it's it's a very well thought out, accurate answer. It's like yeah, that does make sense. Men are more reactive, or women think it through. Yeah. You know, I, I, I we've been having these conversations for, you know, three decades about the why of, you know, why are these these numbers askew? Why are we, you know, uh, you know, is it still, you know, 90 percent male, uh, you know, um, you know, lack of diversity? I, I, I'm, I'm sort of taking a different approach to this today. Like, you know, I don't care about the why anymore. We have to make it different going forward. And whatever that takes, like you better look as a business owner at your matrix. And if you don't have, you know, 40 percent women and you know some amount of diversity figure out why systemically in your organization because you know I made excuses to myself for a long time about that I I really um, I, I think I didn't force the change um, I think that I, I wanted the best candidate for the job and the best candidate was usually a white male um, and I'm mad about that I'm mad that that I sort of let that slide by um, because it's not okay you know we have to compensate because there are so many reasons why um, you know women uh, women girls girls are raised differently um, people who uh, you know come from a, a different uh, ethnic background are treated differently from the time they're children and so the whys are so complex and they go back to the beginning of, of, of you know whatever a person's life if we don't force that change now to make sure that we are welcoming that diversity in the, the matrix of our workforce, um, it's never going to change. You know, and the why doesn't matter. 
the why doesn't matter. We have to force change. We have to make it so. Um, we have to change what the, the, the whole looks like, so to speak, um, and make sure that we are able to put the right person in that spot and make them successful. And so, you know, whatever that takes, um, that's what I'm committed to now. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of uh, uh, asking ourselves why. Uh, it hasn't worked and it hasn't changed enough. Yeah, and it's, you know, we, we see it at the restaurants with when we put the application process out, right? right? It's, um, I mean, one, it's few and far between applicants yeah. anymore at all, right. let alone, you know, male or female, um, Latino, non-Latino, Asian. It doesn't matter anymore. Right. It's, there's just few and far between. Right. And um, what is it that's going to make that change? I mean, it's is it compensation? Is it education? Is it benefits? Is it what is it that's going to bring the individuals in? Well, I mean, you know this phenomenon, like because you ran you know a restaurant for a long time, and you'll sort of see you know your Latin you know amazing butcher or prep cook, um, and for whatever reason they don't want to ascend onto the line, you know, and and yes. and those reasons are uh, multifaceted, right? We could we could try to drill down and say you know why, but it doesn't really matter. What really matters is our ability as um, mentors, as as leaders to take that person and say, I don't care what the why is of why, you know, you don't uh, feel like this is your spot at the top of the tier on, on the cook line or as a sous chef or a CDC. I'm going to make it so that you've got everything you need to get up there. And that's the difference, you know, how I'm feeling today as as how I felt 15 years ago. Uh, 15 years ago, I didn't feel like that was my job to make that. So I, I felt like it was my job to make sure that I had the best kitchen possible. And that usually was a white dude, you know, and, yeah. I, and I don't feel like that's OK anymore. Yeah, it's interesting because we've been taking um, we've had guys that have come in, started as dishwashers, pushed from dishwasher to prep, from prep to the line. And we now, you know, that's the, it's an educational process. That's how I started. Right. I started as a dishwasher. Right. And to me, I think it, you give then that individual has respect for the dishwashing team. It builds it builds camaraderie. It builds the, the whole thing across. And it's been hard to find people that do want to move up. Like you said, right. I have a gentleman who works for me right now, speaks perfect. His English is exceptional. You know, I've offered English classes to all my guys. Right. Do you want to go? And that English? makes a big difference. I mean, it does. You know, right. it, it, it does make a difference, but it doesn't solve the problem. No. And I said, well, what else do what you know, a lot of them work two jobs. So they, they feel that they don't don't have the time or the responsibility to be able to handle both. I, I've I've heard a million different answers. Right to the question, and and you know, setting them up for success has always been my goal. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a hard it's a hard road to travel, and you you take on a lot to make sure that these people have the opportunity that they need, whether it's men, women, you know, Latino, non-Latino, Asian. I don't care who you are, or what you do. Right. I just want you to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, like through the work through La Cocina, which, you know, intimately, you know, um, we have provided an institution now that can help women, you know, immigrant women who from low socioeconomic you know, backgrounds who don't have an education, who don't have a business background to realize their dreams and, and passion around food and create their own businesses. And it's like the most inspiring stuff that I've done in my career, honestly. So how many let's talk a little bit about that and, and La Cocina and how many people go through that program and, and, and a little mm -hmm. bit about how it's funded so people that are listening to this can help 
Right. Know, jump help. in. Yeah. Yeah. Jump yeah. in. You know, see what's going on. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of cool people come out of there. A lot of really interesting projects that you've worked on with those individuals there, and I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So um, La Cocina is a, a business incubator. Um, we um, seek out uh, mostly immigrant and low-income women. Uh, although that's not absolutely exclusive, we do allow men into the program sometimes. We do allow people who have you know bigger business resources. Um, you know, commercial kitchen space. But for the most part, um, the people that we vet and, and allow into the program are low-income immigrant women. Um, and they're starting out their own food businesses. And, uh, you know, the original concept was, you know, the tamale lady who has an informal business selling tamales on the street and makes them in her home kitchen. Um, that was the inspiration for the organization. And it is almost 15 years old. And um, we don't have, like, the numbers of exact numbers of businesses that cycle through in a, in a fixed period of time because we allow people to sort of grow as is um, their natural pace. And so, you know, if they are just starting out as a caterer and have never worked in a commercial kitchen, then, you know, they might take a little bit longer than somebody who's been working as a caterer for 10 years but wants to formalize their business and and uh, grow it. Um, you know, so the, we, we have the, run the gamut of people who have really developed businesses and business ideas to people who are really just starting out with, a, you know, a dream of, of you know, commercializing their salsas or whatever it might be. So um, we have um, graduated a bunch of people into brick and mortar businesses, um, uh, you know, restaurants, um, catering. Um, we now have um, uh, one food and wine best new chef. Um, we have had, um, you know, James Beard nominees now. I mean, it's just incredible what the organization has done and how far we've come uh, in, in 15 years. And it's just really inspiring work. That's awesome. I think that's, I mean, that to me now is, is really ultimately how can, like you said earlier, how can we get back in a bigger way? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really, you know, it's been... Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think that you know, you were talking about the changes in our industry. Um, you know, I'm trying to find that kind of personal satisfaction because, you know, we got into this business because we had a passion to cook. We didn't know that we were going to become so-called celebrities. I still am just I taking hate that word. I know I'm taking it back when people call me a celebrity, um, and uh, you know, when they sort of respond to me based on you know having seen me on TV, um, I'm, I'll never be comfortable with that. But I'll take it because you know it does give us leverage in. Uh, um, our ability to raise money for, for organizations like La Cocina, um, that's one of the silver lining for me. Uh, I personally am not somebody that loves, you know, that idea of walking down the street and being recognizable. Never have. Um, but, you know, I, it is where I am. And so I accept it as part of, of what we are today. But, um, you know, I'm still looking for the deeper meaning because I, I didn't get into this to become famous. Um, I got into it because I had a passion for cooking and it's become so much more. Now you have to be, you know, you have to run a podcast you have to be you know like you know <laughs> that, adept was, that at... was a choice <laughs> i you just know. i wanted to give a voice and i think that's why i chose to do the podcast was to yeah. give a voice and i think you have a lot to share and you're making this is why i wanted to sit down and talk with you because you're you're preaching to the choir here right now yeah yeah and, and it's it, it's really it is an awkward moment when you walk down the street yeah it really is and people are like oh my god were you on I'm like, uh, no. That's why I always answer. I'm like, oh, hi, Bobby Flay. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Someone said to me the other day, I was at the gym working out, you know, sweating, you know, like after a half an hour on a bike and, you know, lifting weights. And this woman looks over at me and says, um, does anyone want to tell you that you look like Tracy Desjardins? And I was like, 
I am Tracy Desjardins. Yeah. And she's like, what? So it was just, you know, those moments happen and uh, they always throw me. It's it's a weird thing. I mean, mm. I never, I ne- we stuck our neck out there. Let's be honest. Like we're the ones who stretched our neck out really far. We went on, both of us, you know, we've both done Iron Chef. The next Iron the Chef. The next Iron Chef. <laughs> the worst chef. <laughs> That was just unbelievable. That was so oh my brutal. God. Yeah. That was so brutal. Uh, what was the kitchen that day we were doing? Pastry, 125 degrees? 125 degrees. I've never poured sweat out of my clogs before, but that, <laughs> that day I did. I poured sweat out of my that shoes. so brutal. But yeah. I think about like all those things we've stretched. We stretch our neck out there. We do it because we think it's good for our businesses. Yeah. And it has alternate repercussions. Yeah. Right? There's other things that come along with it. And I think... Well, uh, you've been through a lot. Yeah, as far as that goes. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I try not to try not to dwell on those things anymore. I try to move on to the next and yeah. and be be in the moment and focus more on you know how to make a bigger impact and yeah. make the change. You know, and I think that, like you said, you know, you're working with La Cocina. I try to do as much work as I can with No Kid Hungry and Chef Cycle and getting you know getting food in kids' hands in need and. I think it's a time times change. Yeah, you know, and then there's the environment, which is something that you know I'm also super focused on. Uh, I don't know what form it'll take at this point in time, but you know, um, uh, we have kids. You know, you have a, a young boy who's what 14? 14, 14. 14. I've got a 19 year old. Um, you know, there are doomsayers that say by 2050 this planet's not going to be inhabitable anymore. So that's super scary because that's actually our children's lifetime. Um, and yeah. you know, I I can't imagine that it's that soon, but um, it, it could be. Um, and uh, you know. We gotta. We need to pay attention to a lot of things. Um, you know, one of the things I'm super obsessed with right now is plastics. Um, right. And you know, if if as an industry we can do something to address that, because you know the rolls and rolls of plastic film and disposable delis that we use because we don't have another thing to use is just like right now I'm obsessed with it. I just can't even. I, I can't even fathom like how we're gonna fix that. But it needs to be fixed. And you know, yeah. we're doers. So I mean, how much you hear all these things and, and it's like what is the next thing we can focus on and, right. and it's it's almost like there's so much we can't we've been taken I'm try, how do I word this in the, in the best way like the other day somebody said to me how much time do you actually get to cook right and and I try to explain to the younger generation everybody's like man I want your job and I'm like no you don't no relish in those moments when you're on the line yeah when you get to cook every day that's the best and it's the best because Mm -hmm. those are when you don't have to worry like cooking it's like okay if you didn't mise your station that's on you and that's the only thing you got to worry about is measing your station and getting ready for service like that was those moments like i always kept saying to myself as a young cook i can't wait to be there i'm pushing for that i'm pushing for that and then you get there and you're like man why don't i get to cook anymore like you like yeah. And, you know, I mean, the things that we have to do today um, as the people that we are in, in our industry are just so diverse. I feel like my brain is like, you know, and I've always I have a really you know good ability to focus and organize myself. But I feel like my brain's a scrambled egg most of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, it's because I'm doing so many different things. And, um, you know, I relish the tasks of like something that I can start and finish. Like I love cleaning because I can just, you know, I can start the process and and finish it um and there's so my email is not like that <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i laughed about that the other day but you know it's a really really 
valid point. Like we, we try to find things that we can complete from start to finish because we can't get everything done that we're really supposed to do every day because we're trained from the beginning when we started cooking, there's an end to the means. We have to mise en place for service and that is a start and finish of a dish and it's getting it out in a timely manner to the guests. But our life isn't like that anymore. No, it's all these loose ends and they just drive me crazy. I mean, it's just, it's like so many, and we have to be so many different things. Um, you know, personalities, you know, we have to go on TV, we have to still create food, we have to train and inspire our, our teams. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's so multifaceted and and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, you know, we don't have the business training. We are not joiners by nature. Uh, we don't share information very well. I mean, it's, you know, we're, if you look at the personality type of chefs, I mean, we're kind of lo lone wolf, you yeah. know, and, and we don't, uh, we don't know how to, how to ask for help. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting world. And I think it's, a, it's gotten a lot better. I think, you know, there's been a lot. There, there has been no mentorship of business. Right. There's been no mentorship for um, opening your own restaurant. It's been a situation where mentors have been, I'm going to train you how to cook. Right. I'm going to give you technique. And and that was that, that's where it stopped in right. our industry. We didn't have anybody to show us how, how to read a contract, how to not get hosed. Uh, right. You know, and I think now... The, the great part about the business is I feel that we can reach out to each other and say, hey, who do you work with? Who's this? And do you know this? And I've never done this before. And I've been asked to do an airport contract. What is, tell me about your contract. And, right. You know, we have to learn to communicate better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's- and share information. And share information. Ask for help. And, and I think that's some ways getting better, but I think in the current economic state, it's getting harder because people are afraid, afraid to share information because they're going to lose an opportunity or lose a staff member or lose an edge over the next individual. And you see that a lot now. You see that in some personalities. I mean, I'll tell anyone anything. I mean, oh, you know, I mean, been. you know, obviously there's, you know, confidentiality and contracts and that kind of stuff. But, you know, if it comes to somebody that I care about, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give them any information that they need. Um, and uh, it's important, you know, um, it's an important aspect of what we do. I tell young people that I meet all the time that are, you know, getting their best, you know, their best new chef, you know, accolades or whatever. I'm like give them my card and I say call me you know when you're when you're negotiating a contract and you need to understand like how this works if you need a good lawyer if you need uh, business advice reach out please and most of them don't um, unfortunately but um, I think that that's you know another way that we can give back is to share the information and the experiences that we've had I mean you've you've been instrumental for me you've Thank always you. been there You've been there when I went pear-shaped. You've been there when, you know, things were hard at the restaurant and I was learning something. You've always pushed me, made sure the keel was at least turning in the right direction. And it didn't go to, <laughs> I didn't go into the tornado <laughs> or the hurricane, you know? And, and it's been, for me, like, it, 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 I can't even thank you enough, you know? It's like, and I think there's so much that you have to offer this industry and so much that people have to learn to ask yeah that's reach right out to you. yeah yeah and then you know i mean that's how that's how we can pay it forward and um and you know i can't say that we can ensure the legacy of, of, of our our work um but 
that's what I like to think about. Um, I think, you know, the restaurant business is in a pivotal, little strange position right now where we are at this tipping point where the business model doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I, I personally think that, you know, we need uh, smarter business people to upright it, um, to figure, help us figure out, um, obviously with the knowledge base that we have, um, to interface with us to figure out how to fix uh, a model that is badly broken. Um, otherwise, you know, these the restaurants that we you've worked in and the experiences that we've had are going to not continue to exist. And maybe there, you know, maybe there's no market for it. Maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, maybe we really are dinosaurs and it's going a different way, but you know, whatever, whatever's the vestiges of what's left of, of the businesses that we've participated in and, and learned in, um, you know, if there's some opportunity for the future for those to exist as, as they do, um, you know, I want to ensure that, um, as best as possible, but you know, the, the financial model's broken. Uh, you even see, you know, the biggest players, in our industry are uh, closing restaurants left and right. And it's a big concern. Um, I don't know where it's all going. Um, you know, it seems to be, you know, secondary markets seem to be the place to, to be and people are successful because one thing that Food TV's done is made everybody a foodie and people aspire to go to nice restaurants whether they've ever been to one in their life or not. They've seen it on TV and, you know, we've created a market that is everywhere now, uh, which is interesting. Um, and I think it, it, it opens up a lot of opportunity. But you know, what we're seeing in dense cities like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles now are just too many restaurants. There are too many options. And, you know, restaurants that are wildly popular with all the accolades, you know, Michelin stars even, you know, open, uh, you know, they're busy for a year and a half and a year and a half down gone. the road, they're gone. And, you know, maybe that is what we have to accept as the way of the future. I don't know. Um, but um, I mean, it's, 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 and I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, bad contracts, bad business models, bad leases, bad leases, not understanding how to run the business properly. And did they ever really make a profit? Right. They, were they ever, were they ever breaking even or was it just a situation where let's get the awards and then let's move on? And I think, yeah, I mean, you know, all the restaurants that I've opened have started to make money literally, you know, I mean, obviously not making back the initial capital, but you know, profitability on a month to month basis in the second month of business it has to, yeah, it has to. Otherwise, you know, you're in trouble really quickly. And I think that's a, that's become, you know, I, I was never trained on P and L's. I was never trained on all those things. And those are all, you know, hard learned lessons that you put your head down and it's like, okay, I went to business school as part of culinary school, but nobody really guided me through those things. Yeah. And that's a whole new learning curve when you start reading those every month. That's right. We do, we do a P&L every week. Yeah, you, you have to. I mean, it's you got to keep, you know, as Drew Neoporn always said, it's a nickel and dime business. He wasn't wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> no, he's not at all. What do, you, what do you see now as the change? What do you see now as the moving forward in, the, in, in, in our industry? Not only just the fact that it is a broken system. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think that we need to change how we do business. And I don't know what that means. Um, you know, obviously, the labor dollars are getting more and more expensive. And that has an impact on, um, you know, that profit and loss, that bottom line. Um, and that 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 part of it needs to be, I mean, you know, for me, let's just say at the end of the 21 years of Jardinier, to be making the same amount of money I was making in the beginning part, I would have to have been charging double what I was charging. So, you know, I basically just took absorb 
absorb those losses, you know, over that 21 year span and um, didn't increase the prices to the consumer. Now, I don't think the consumer would have paid twice what they were paying. So, you know, that wasn't the solution. Otherwise, I would have just done it. But it, it just illustrates the problem, which is, you know, all of mostly it's 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 the labor costs that that went up and, and became that, you know, huge impact on on profitability. Um, and, you know, I believe 500 percent in, in living wage and, and, you know, 1550 uh, minimum wage. I mean, there's no question that, you know, that doesn't even begin to chip away at what it costs to live in San Francisco. Um, you know, we have lots and lots of problems with with, you know, those profit models. Um I don't know what the solution is. I mean, you know, maybe it is, um, it's something that we can't even see. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, people from other industries can help us um, with some insight into something that we are so entrenched in, we can't see the light. You know, the other day I was talking with a couple of folks and, and if you look 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the cost of food in a restaurant hasn't really increased that much. No, I know. And not like a car or a house. I mean, like if you look at housing costs. Exactly. Like, I mean, I bought a house in San Francisco in 1994. You know, it's worth, you know, four times what I bought it for. Exactly. And And I think people don't realize that we pay the least per capita for our food in the world. Right. Because of subsidies. Right. Subsidies control costs across the board. So if they're doing corn, soy, wheat, that affects meat that affects everything but at the same time the cost of food has increased for us to purchase it hasn't stayed low right so we've basically been taking it in the shorts yep for the past 15 years as cost of our goods have gone up not just labor right but you know now there's delivery fees on every delivery there's all these things that get rolled in to our everyday life to con- to to um, compensate everybody else for their increase in costs, but we've we, just absorbed it. We absorb it as a business, mm-hmm. and we can't pass those costs on because perception of food is that it should be inexpensive. Yet you go anywhere else in the world, and it's very expensive. It's very expensive. Mm-hmm. So it creates an interesting dynamic as a restaurant uh, and. A, and a, owning a restaurant, running a restaurant, how do you balance that? Right. Do we get a lesser quality product to pass on to the guests, which you and I would never do? Right. Uh, or do you, what we have seen is the minimization of portions over the years right. to accommodate for... Which is good. I mean, you know, Americans, Americans have always, eat, always eaten too much. But then, but then you get the complaint that there's too little on the plate yeah. for too much. So there's this balance. Which, which, which road do we take? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's a hard road to take. Yeah, it's not clear. I mean, the, the path forward is not clear. Um, you know, I'm, I'm relying on people who are smarter than me to figure it out. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. And I, I'm very comfortable with recognizing I know what road I belong in. <laughs> and stay in your lane. Stay in my lane. I'm <laughs> staying in my lane right now. And, it, and yeah, we have to ask for help. Yeah. And I don't know what's next. No, I know. It, you know, I, I think... Um, but you know, I mean, the, the there's no doubt that the restaurant business and chefs and the world of food has become a beloved part of the American culture, um, and we can thank you know food TV for that. Um, so you know, I think that there's hope. There's there's certainly a market there, um, but um, you know, how do we navigate that is is the question. Yeah, that's the true that's a true question. All right, so you have a busy day ahead of you. I've got to go. We all have busy days, so I'm going to ask a few quick things: red or white wine? White. Beer or tequila? Tequila. I knew that. (laughs) Tacos or hamburgers? Tacos. Okay. Pepperoni or cheese? Cheese. Always. Yeah. Always. I like a classic. Uh Nigiri or sashimi? 
Nigiri. I love rice. Okay. Uni or caviar? Ooh, that's a tough one. How about both? That's yeah. There is no wrong answer here. It's whatever you like. Yeah. Okay. So, dry aged or not dry aged? A dry aged. It's funny. I've actually had people say they don't like dry aged because mm-hmm. the the difference. Uh, old wine or young wine? I'll take I'll take young wine. Really? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Uh, I just you know I I appreciate. I mean I think that you know it's it's kind of probably a little bit like. Um, salami, you can't really tell what the trajectory of it is as you age it, right? You yep. know, like fresh sausages versus the salami. You put that in the casing and you're sort of, you know, hoping a prayer, right? And, yes. Oh, and, I know all about that. Right. And you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I think the same, I mean, you know, yes, there are predictives in, in what's going to happen to a wine, but, you know, I've tasted a lot of, I've had the privilege of tasting a lot of wines up to, you know, 100 years old. And it's interesting, but it's not necessarily what I want to drink. That's awesome. Yeah. I love you, Tracy. Love you too, Chris. Very proud of you. You're amazing. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I feel like I'm holding on by the tips of my fingernails. We all do. It's, yeah. it's, uh, thank you for always being there and mm. guiding me in the right direction and yeah. being a figure to look to and to ask for help and show me the right way. Hopefully I'll always be here. You will. Okay. I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing this. I know you got a busy day. All right. I really appreciate it. So My pleasure. You're the best. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. I hope that worked for you.